and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. Here we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here on the podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to learn how to better love your neighbor and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. We are looking to have candid conversations of what it looks like to better love your neighbor. Our desire and hope is to model these civil conversations to show how to better relate to others in a polarized world and building relationships with those that are different than you without compromising your faith. And we do that by bringing on a variety of people that have different backgrounds, including Christians and Muslims and other faith and society and even government leaders. It is such a unique podcast and that we get to dive into the lives of bridge builders that are truly making a difference in the world by modeling how to love your neighbor. And we are incredibly delighted that you have come across our podcast today or however you found us. And we hope that you have a chance to hear the insightful conversations from season one and season two as well. So we encourage you to browse our episodes and take a listen if you get a chance. But today, our guest is Dr. Ingrid Matson. She was born and raised in Canada, where she attended Catholic school and later studied and converted to Islam. After becoming a professor of Islamic studies at Hartford Seminary, Dr. Matson served as vice president and then was elected president of the Islamic Society of North America, where she established the Office of Interfaith and Community and engagement in Washington, D.C., and she facilitated new partnerships with other faith-based communities and civic organizations. She was also a member of the Interfaith Task Force of the White House of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships during the Barack Obama administration. And currently, she is working on a major project addressing spiritual and sexual abuse in Muslim spaces called the Herma Project. So Pastor Bob and Dr. Matson will dive into conversation on multi-faith relationships that don't compromise faith, but actually strengthen communities, speaking out on religious extremism and the initiative of helping those that have been tragically affected by spiritual and sexual abuse by those in position of religious authority. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoy today's episode and I'll go ahead and welcome in the host of the Bold Love Podcast, Dr. Bob Roberts Jr. and his conversation with Dr. Ingrid Matson. I am really excited today to have Ingrid Matson with me uh, on, on this program. I can't believe she would do it. I first heard Ingrid speak at the ISNA convention. That stands for the Islamic Association of North America, where uh, she was president of that organization. Shocked me. I didn't know that Muslims would have a woman to be a president of the major uh, Islamic organization in America, but they did. There were 40, 50,000 Muslims that were present. Uh, she's brilliant. She's smart. She's highly educated. Uh, she's a rare person. Uh, she goes against a lot of stereotypes. Uh, I got to be honest, Ingrid, the first time I heard you, I'm scratching my head going, okay, this lady looks like my sister or, or something. Now, how does she become a Muslim? She was raised in Canada and uh, the West. So t tell me a little bit about your upbringing. I I'm just curious. In Canada, uh, I understand you went to a Catholic school and how you became a Muslim. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, first of all, thanks so much, Pastor Bob, for inviting me on your program. It's really, it's really wonderful just to be with you again, um, even if it's a virtual meeting. So I thank God for that, that we got through this year and are able, okay. are able to meet each other again. Um, well, you know, it's funny because um, uh, neither you nor I look like anyone who came from from Palestine or from the <laughs> Middle East, where, you know, we know the origins of Christianity, Judaism and Islam are all in pretty much the same area of the world. But these are global religions with uh, people who have followers from all over the world, you know, every race and color and and culture. Uh, so that's the story of Islam as well. On a personal basis, yeah, I grew up. Um, <clears throat> I grew up with my family in Canada, six of seven children, <laughs> the ten-year age difference between the oldest and youngest. So you can imagine the chaos uh, that was in that house. And uh, so I found, you know, it's funny. I've always been a person who likes peace and quiet. So I used to find that kind of peace and quiet in the library that was one block away in the church that was one block away, the Catholic church. And also then when I could, especially in the summer, we used to go up to a place uh, that was in our family for a long time, an island. So I'd, I'd wander out into the woods by myself. So that's, I'm a person who seeks a lot of peace. And uh, yeah, we went to Catholic elementary and high schools and I got a very good education there. People with a lot of really good uh, morals and and ethics, also some problems in the community. But uh, what I discovered when I came to the age of reason, I guess you could say, is that it was not what I was being taught in terms of creed and understanding of my relationship with God was not resonating with me. I didn't believe it. Um, and so I just I just quietly walked away from that. And really didn't look back. I wasn't a, you know, you hear about people who are seekers, religious seekers, and they go looking for, I was not that kind of person. Um, but I happened to encounter and make friends with some Muslims when I was in university. And, and just my curiosity about them and their life caused me to read a translation of, of the Quran because they said they were Muslims. I didn't know anything about Muslims at all, which seems kind of hard to believe in today's day and age where you know, people think they have a lot of yeah. knowledge, but this was, uh, when was this? This was the mid-1980s, so it just wasn't in the news that much. And also our sources of news were pretty limited in those days, if you can remember, <laughs> Pastor yeah. Bob. It was, no, right. you know, you read the newspaper, you watched the evening news. I mean, that's how yeah. you found out about things. It was pretty limited. Um, and when I read, when I started reading that Quran and translation, uh, you know, I found I found faith uh, flourishing in me, opening again, and I felt this kind of um, connection with God that I hadn't felt since I was very young. You know, and and it was really this this uh, you know, it was a little bit disturbing at first because like, wait, I, you know, I wasn't looking for this, but then um, I had to be honest to myself and realize, wow, this is really here you go. Here is, I've always been connected with God and here is this connection back. And so I, you know, I followed that path, kept following that path about trying to deep in, in the desire to deepen my connection with God. 
Was that difficult for your family or those around you or no big deal? Yeah, I think it was diff- it was difficult for two reasons. One, to them it kind of came out of the blue because they they, you know, saw me just not really interested in religion and then and then I come and say, you know, uh that I'm I'm now a Muslim and and so what was they were just wondering what had happened. And you know, young people sometimes they're not always there's a certain stage in your life where you're not always so communicative with your parents and your right. family. So I think I, I, you know, I think that was on me that I wasn't really communicating enough what was happening. Um, they weren't that worried about Islam per se, because they honestly didn't really know that much. Again, very different than than what would happen today where people might think, oh, I, you know, I know what those people believe and it's bad. Right. Um, it was more like, hmm, like we don't really know anything about that. And so it was a question of them just seeing the effect on my life, which I think they all would say was very positive. Um, but it took it took time. It was really uh, you know, a, a different kind of uh, they hadn't experienced that in that way before. So it took time. And, you know, that's how relationships are, right? You, ha- you have to be, sa- be patient with each other a little right. bit. So maybe they would have felt a lot worse if you would have converted to become a Baptist or something like <laughs> me. I mean, that would have scared them to death. Yeah, I don't know. It's my, I had grandparents who were both um, Protestant and Catholic. Oh, and, okay. and the Protestant grandparents, one on each side, um, they, because the Catholic church was very strict on not allowing marriage unless the, you know, interfaith marriage that was considered interfaith at that time between two Christians, unless the children were raised Catholic. So that, so that was how we ended up being raised Catholic was really for that reason. But, you know, there was already some religious diversity in our history. So, yeah, I don't think it was really, they were not very, um, they were not so ideological about, uh, you know, about sticking to the Catholic faith, for example. You have advocated for a greater role uh, for women, uh, Islamic, M- Muslim women uh, in, in the faith. Uh, tell us about that struggle and has it worked? Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me, uh, because I, I have, you know, I have, uh, I have a PhD in this area in Islamic thought and history and theology. And what I know is that Muslim women were always very influential. They, you know, are, we have a tradition of women scholars, women leaders. Um, but the difference, you know, what really has happened in the modern period is that the space for religion really shrunk, right? It, you, in a yeah. traditional society, wherever you are in the world, in a traditional society, you know, knowledge and wisdom and influence is really quite diffuse in the society. You've got like elders, you've got grandparents, you've got wise people, um, and we don't have ordination per se. So there's not like a, an ordination where a person becomes completely different than the rest of the community. But there are different forms of um, experience or knowledge. You know, some people are more knowledgeable than others. And and the problem is that in the modern period, that space for religion has shrunk so much that basically, uh, and especially when Muslims are in a minority, it becomes like everything is concentrated in this one place, in the one mosque, 
that they've been able to build. And this one person, the imam, who they can afford maybe to pay or pay not that well, right? And and so it kind of distorts the idea of where where you know knowledge should come from and where the role model should come from. And so really for me, uh, a big part of the goal is re-educating my community about our tradition. And not only that it's possible, but the benefits of of really listening to and benefiting from the gifts, the intellectual, the spiritual, the emotional gifts of all of those in our community. And and I think it's, you know, I I'm really happy to see what's happening. I feel that especially in a country that allows religious freedom, you know, like the United States, where people are allowed to form their own communities and they're allowed to organize around ideas or values when there is that freedom and you don't have this strict government control, you know, on speech and on religious practice, then, then you will see a flourishing of, of those efforts and those communities. And so I, I really, this is the thing I think I value most about uh, religion in America. Was it a radical thing when you were elected as the president of ISNA? Was that difficult for some or was it easy? It was interesting. I was wondering because, well, first I was, I was elected vice president. So I was the first female vice president and then I was elected president. Now, it's the members who elect me, right? So it right. wasn't given that it was a majority, it wasn't a surprise to them. I I was curious though if there were others, if there would be many others outside of the organization or say in in different places internationally when I went who would you know think this was strange, but I always found that people were very respectful. Um, there's always some grumpy people, sure. you know, who say things, but you can't, you can't be yeah. too bogged down by that. And I really uh, appreciated how, even if there, there were those who had some different views, there was generally a relationship of, of respect, you know, really to respect, uh, you know, as much as they respected me, respect the organization, the membership who had made this choice. You know, Ingrid, my tribe as well has studied, has struggled with issues of women and how we view them. And many times it has very little to do with the scriptures and more to do with the culture. Do you find the same thing in Islam or are there verses that would prohibit you from being the president of ISNA? Yeah, I think it's uh, culture is just such a huge part of it. Um, and and different you know, different forms of culture. Oh boy, that's such, there's so many things that, that seep into the religious tradition. And, and to be fair to people like ordinary believers, they simply might not know the difference. You know, they're raised this way and this is what they've seen and this is what they've experienced. And they might think that, you know, well, if it's, if this is what's in their experience, even going back to their grandparents, then it must always have been. Right. Not knowing that maybe even a hundred years ago right. was different, even yeah. in their own settings. So, so I try to be really compassionate and understand that that people usually are doing what they what they think is the right thing, and our goal is to um, maybe help them um, encounter different sources and and history so they understand that the world could be a little bit a little bit different and, and again i think that's one 
one big benefit of being a Muslim in America is that we have Muslims from so many different cultures here. And so inevitably they'll encounter each other and and suddenly they'll, you know, they'll have this surprise. Wait a minute, are you saying that's not, <laughs> you know, how we have to live our faith? And yeah. and it's that very encounter with the diversity that makes them have to go back and sift through and say, well, you know, maybe this is part of our culture. It might be a good part, might be a bad part, but it's not necessarily part of the religion. So a woman can lead. I'm curious about this. I'm really ignorant. Can a, can, I've never seen it, but I don't know if it's in the Quran. Can a woman lead the prayers in a mosque? So there, this is a point of great controversy. Um, the majority of Muslims will say that a woman should not lead a mixed gender prayer. So she could lead a congregation of women. Okay. Um, and and there are those. There are lots of women who will gather in in all sorts of different places, even in even in mosques at times, and and that's uncontroversial. So what would, is, would those women right. like we have Bible studies? Would those women actually teach the Quran and and things like that? Oh right, yeah. And actually, teaching teaching the Quran, teaching scripture. All of that is open. Women can do for men and women. There's no problem about that. And that's not controversial in any way. And I've done that. You know, I've I've stood in front of uh, congregations and mosques and I've I've taught to both men and women and, and many other places. I have many imams who are my students. Uh, the, the only thing is leading that mixed gender prayer and and there, but there's different opinions about why that is. Like, why do the majority say she shouldn't do that? Some say it's simply because of the physicality of the prayer, right. because the person who leads the prayer stands in front. This is a physical prayer of bowing, right? right. That includes bowing and prostrating. And so it's just not a position where, you know, you want to have a woman in, in front of there. And this, we do have a faith that really does emphasize physical modesty in order to try to protect that that respectful relationship between men and men and women. Um, so, and so you know, and others say others say, well, it has more to do with the idea of men as innately leaders of the community. So, yeah. so that's a different view, and there's there is disagreement on that. So I'm curious, tell us about the hijab. Is that optional or does the Quran say you have to wear one? And why are there so many different varieties? Some women cover their whole face, some partial. And then I know some Muslim women, they don't wear, wear a hijab. Right, right. So the Quran does have some verses that, that says that women should cover their bodies. And one of them says, says that women should take their, their head coverings and 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 draw it to you know to cover to cover their bosom you know sort of just like to to keep this area uh kind of covered and um but but every verse can be interpreted right so every verse in fact has to be interpreted so what does that mean precisely and some people in in the different schools of interpretation some will say well Although a, a specific garment is mentioned, you know, the veil or the head covering in the Quran, the goal of that teaching is, is physical modesty, right? And that could be achieved other ways as well. 
Whereas some will say, no, it's pretty clear. The scripture is pretty clear. It talks about a specific piece of clothing worn in a specific way. And, and there is room for difference of interpretation. You know, for me, I, I wear the hijab in, in this kind of traditional way. Um, but there are others who also, as you say, will, will though and go beyond that and will cover their face. And they have some, you know, they have some teachings that, that justify that. And I think, you know, to me, the importance is that, uh, is that we respect each other's mature and and serious reading of the scripture you know i can't sure. simply say you know forget it you're just absolutely wrong if they have if they have approached it with with seriousness and with faith then i think my role is to is to um you know welcome them and and accept them uh, we may have a conversation we may have yeah. a discussion about it I may even try to convince some people one way or another, but most of the time, I think the best thing is that we we really respect that autonomy that God gave us. I've become uh, very good friends with many Muslims. So as a result, frankly, uh, it was not my intellect as much as it was my relationships, people that challenged me to read the Quran. So I have I've found some translations easier to read than others, but you're an expert on that. As a matter of fact, I read your book uh, a few years ago when I started reading the Quran. I don't, I don't have it in front of me. What is the name of your book on, on the Quran? The story of the Quran, its go. history and place in Muslim life. What would you say to a Christian or a Westerner or someone who has never read the Quran before, but they want to read it? I would say the first thing I would say is that it's not structured like a typical narrative book. It is primarily an oral scripture. So Quran literally means recitation. And, and like an oral scripture, what happens is that, you know, if anyone has studied oral tradition, there is a kind of return to the same themes. So it can be re seem repetitive at time, but each, each repetition is a little bit different, gives you a little different angle. Um, it also is not necessarily it's not chronological it doesn't have one narrative flow so you can pick up anywhere in the story as it were and, and follow it um and so i think that's the most important thing to to just kind of suspend your expectation of what a what a book is the beginning and the end this is about these these cycles of these cycles of themat themes that are returned to again and again with a different flow. And I guess that the thread, a thread that is very important that I think can help people see the unity is to look for the so-called beautiful names of God that are that are throughout. So you'll have a little passage and then and then it will say, verily God is the all-knowing, the all-wise or indeed God is the all-seeing, the all-hearing. And, and it's these, these so-called names of God or attributes of God, compassion, mercy, knowledge, uh, wisdom, that, that are threaded throughout the Quran and that provide part of the narrative theme so that we understand that, you know, you've got all these different circumstances in your own life, you know, difficulty and ease, 
You have all of these different historical narratives of people who have struggled, you know, through their existence, having, you know, undergoing oppression and then liberation like Banu Israel, the children of the Israelites. Their stories are told. But in all of this, it's the same God. You know, you may experience that God sometimes as as majestic or severe. um, And sometimes you may experience that God because of your circumstances as really loving and merciful, but it is, you know, what is to understand is that it's all the same God. It's your creator and your sustainer throughout all of this. You've been an advocate of, of interfaith. We call it multi-faith uh, because I'm a conservative evangelical and candidly Ingrid, we don't like the word interfaith. We feel like when we, when that word's used, often people think you have to water down your faith or, say what you really don't believe. So so we use the word multi-faith. You've been active in that space. Uh, what made you active in that space? You've pushed the Muslim community in North America towards a lot of, of uh, interfaith, multi-faith engagement. Talk to us about that. Well, first of all, uh, it's because I, I believe in relationships, you know, I believe we we need to be in relationship with the people around us wherever we are, and we live in a multi faith world, right? And so, so we need to we need to know the people we're living with. We need to understand them. We need to have relationships with them. So that's just the foundation for it. Um, you know, from the other side, it's the reality that religion can be a source of conflict. And and religious diversity can be a source, can be leveraged and used for other reasons, for political reasons, for, you know, for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with religion. And, and that hurts me because I love my religion and I, I love religious people. You know, even if I don't share the same religion, I just love that people want a relationship with God. It's very painful to me when something that I care about so much is used in a in a harmful way. And so I want I want you know, I want all of us to succeed as much as 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 much as I believe in my own faith and I I want to make sure that no one including ourselves misunderstands our religion or uses it to harm others. I also want other people of faith to succeed because the Quran says that if God had wanted, he could have made us all have the same faith and have the same belief. And, you know, this is God's world. Um, It's not to say, and I think most Muslims would agree with you that it's not that all religions are the same or equally true or, you know, some kind of moral relativism or anything like that. But but the reality is uh, God made this world full of people of diverse faiths as, as he made this world full of people of diverse cultures and ethnicities. And so it seems to me that my part of my religious obligation is to be in relationship with, with these people and find out what that means for me. Like, you know, even if I have a different perspective, can I learn something about myself yeah. and my own community from others? I can. It happens all the time. And, happened, and God wants to, to teach us. Yeah, I've, I've, there's several things that I admire about uh, Muslims, and one of them is is their prayer and their their passion for prayer. I was with a uh, Muslim the other day, and we were talking, and uh, I was telling him. He, he asked me, "Said the one thing that would undermine my faith 
is would be the whole cross and the resurrection. That's the whole essence of Christianity. And I said, I'm curious about yours. I said, when I look at yours, it's the practice of prayer. I mean, your faith, the whole worship service, your life, everything is built around that prayer. Let, let me ask you this, Ingrid. Uh, one of the things I learned from Muslims uh, growing up, East Texas, evangelical, we always supported Israel. No questions asked. And as I got to know Muslims and work in different parts of the world, I, I would see strong support for the Palestinians. And that was new to me. What is this? You know, I understood why Christians supported Israel, but it began to make me stop and think, now, wait a minute. I'm happy the Jews have gone back to the Holy Land, but then I began to think there were people that were already there. Who were those people? And I had to go through a big re-education process on my own. Tell me, I think a lot of times as Christians, we don't understand what is the tie to Muslims or Islam with the Palestinians? Yeah, thanks for that question, Bob. And it is a big, big topic. Um, what I would say is that, first of all, Palestinians include both, you know, both Christians and Muslims. So there are lots of Christian Palestinians of different denominations, many different Christian denominations. And I think some people forget that. In fact, they're, you know, the oldest, the, the oldest Christian right. communities are right. in Palestine, right? Um, and they're really struggling as as all Palestinians are to just to be able to maintain their their communities and their populations. So so that's important. Um, Jerusalem itself has has a very special place in Islam. Uh, it is a place where in Islamic tradition, where as a Muslim, we believe in all of the prophets. You know, we believe we believe in in Moses and and Solomon and David and you know all of the prophets. So it's a land of prophets. It's a land of prophecy. It's a sacred land and a sacred space, and it is a space from the beginning of Islam um, that has been uh, a place where we've worshipped and visited and lived as well. So there are, as you say, that that when the modern state of Israel was created. There were already people there, um, and and I, you know, it's it's hard for us sometimes um, to really be honest about our history. I mean, I, I'm a white person, right? I'm a Muslim, but I'm a white Muslim, and um, you know, my family immigrated to Canada, and the reality is, mm, we were we were settlers in Canada, <laughs> yeah. uh, brought here by colonial power, right? And and there were already people here. I, I remember growing up, we used to dig where where our family's historical cottages, we used to dig in the ground and find artifacts of the native people who were there. It wasn't until I became an adult where I started thinking, well, what happened to those native people who left yeah. the, you know, at that pottery? And, and so I, I think all of us need to connect these situations and realize that uh, we may have grown up with certain ideas about our place in the world and who belongs where, but we are we are the products of history as well, and we have to be honest about that. And so, so uh, 
you know, I know that many, many Christians think about modern Israel as as equivalent maybe to to the to the biblical Israel. But, you know, uh, as Muslims, we also, as I've said before, our Quran recognizes the children of Israel and tells their story and their story of struggle that was that was godly against Pharaoh and tyranny. But to us, we look at that as a lesson, not just that that one people should have liberation, but that all people should yeah. should have liberation and freedom, right? And I just hope yeah. that we we kind of link those values and understandings um, and teachings of our scripture and of our history with the the reality of the modern world and and um, what we see as the the really harmful impacts of colonialism in many places. What you say is is right on, Ingrid. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm actually doing some work on it right now uh, because uh, I thank God for the Jewish people and the Hebrew scriptures and our Bible. We read them. But Christianity, as, as we follow Jesus, we believe he was the fulfillment of all of that. And I try to remind Christians that that the Israel of the Hebrew scriptures is is not the uh, Israel of, of of Jesus and the whole essence of Jesus is thank God for the Jewish people, but now it's not just one people; it's it's all people, and they matter. Uh, so I think also as evangelicals, we really don't know uh, nearly as many Palestinians as we do Israelis. And when I got to, it's, you're right. I didn't realize there were evangelicals and all the Catholics and Orthodox and, and it impacted me. And, and then when I heard, you know, I thought if a, if a Christian suffered in the West Bank, it must be because the Muslims were giving them a hard time. Found out that's not true at all. 70% of them are happy to live with their Muslim neighbors. No issues at all. It's economics. It's the security and so forth. And what I discovered is my unrestrained uh, support of Israel actually harmed people that were of my very tribe. I didn't, yeah. I didn't understand that. And so it, you know, and, and I do, you know, and I don't know where you stand and we can disagree and be friends. I do support Israel, but I've come to the conclusion in, in a Christian way, I have to equally support the Palestinians. And so I look at the current uh, situation that we're in, and I would never want the state of Israel to be lost. But I do believe that it's only right that the Palestinians also have a state or they're given equal citizenship. I believe right. that they ought to have one or the other. I look at what's going on right now, uh, and my heart is broke uh, when I see the pictures of of Israelis and, and Palestinian, but on a much larger scale, the Palestinians, the loss of life, uh, the hardships that they've had, the occupation. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is. It is so, so very painful. And and Pastor Bob, I want to really thank you for saying that. It it helps me because sometimes it's painful to see to see you know our our friends in the multi faith community sometimes just just not saying anything, you know, they may speak on other issues of justice, but they just are silent when it comes comes to this issue. And, and that's painful. And it's not necessary. I mean, it's really interesting to me that there are there are many um, Israeli Jews and there are many yeah. um, American Jews who are speaking out and, and they want to uh, 
you know, they want to live in a state that is not oppressing others. They want they want to have a solution that uh, where they don't have to dehumanize others. And not only that, it's like it's almost like, you know, you feel sorry and then you're like squishing this, you know, stopping yourself from feeling sorry for the Palestinians. Well, how do you do that? Only by you can only do that by de- not only dehumanizing them, but also cutting off a part of your heart, right? Like yeah. that feeling of compassion is from God. We know that the, when we when we see someone in pain uh, and, and it hurts, that's from God. That's from God's love. And if we we decide to squish that down, we are hurting our own our own souls. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. We live in a very polarized world right now. Islam has dealt with Islamic extremism, and now we're seeing some of the same roots and emergence of that, even in my faith. White Christian nationalists, it's, it's very concerning. Never in a million years would have I thought you would have seen Christians storm our capital, many of the other things that have taken place, and, and I'm concerned about it. And I would say I'm not a young pastor, but I train tremendous amount of young pastors, start churches in America. And these are conservative pastors. And yet there is this real fear that something has entered the church that has not been here. And there's a fear of speaking out against it for fear they'll be misunderstood. Any advice you would say to young pastors as they're dealing with church members that are listening to QAnon and actually sharing some of the conspiracy theories, any advice you would want to give us? Yeah, Bob, you know, I, I'll tell you, I went, I went through this, this struggle and heartbreak for a long time when it came to the Muslim community. You know, I was trying to understand how there could be young Muslims who were attracted to these radical and extreme ideas. And, and at first, I thought it was that they just didn't know, right? Like they didn't have the right information. But, but over time, I realized that wasn't the case and that you can't correct this kind of thinking with the right information. And I, so what I did was I ended up reading a lot. I mean, for a couple of years, I was reading everything I could about cognitive frames and and biases, cognitive biases, and why conspiracy theories, you know, take hold and how echo chambers form. So I think we 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 like to think that if we would just show people what's right, that they'll that they'll see that. But that's not the case. There's something going on in our minds. And this is very this is why this is a very satanic kind of kind of thing. It's actually a kind of mind control. And there are people who are experts in knowing how to create this kind of um, uh, like disinformation and how to make people people um, resist any kind of different point of view? It's it's actually very similar. And you you probably you know your pastors probably talk about this at some point in the education. It's very similar to how cults um, cults indoctrinate people, right? Like they yeah. begin, they begin by kind of breaking people down and then isolating them from family and anyone else who might have any influence on them. So there's a certain pattern and actually we're kind of facing that today. And so I really recommend, 
you know, people to look at, at what kind of, you know, what do people do to deprogram those who have been in cults and, and conspiracy theories? And really a big part of it, I mean, if I were going to sum, sum it up in one word, um, what's needed more than anything is to not let go of that relationship with the person. Yeah. Don't, whatever happens, don't cut them off. Always leave a door open because they're never going to leave if they don't have someone who they can trust to, to come out that door. And so, so keep that relationship open and, and show them that you care about them. And over time, you know, they may be able to, to start, start listening a, a little bit. I think it is all about relationships. When I first started uh, getting pastors and imams together, they were nervous about one another, especially evangelicals. Uh, and, and the reality is within three days, they would change their mind. But it was never because the Christians discovered a new verse in their Bible or the Muslims discovered a new verse in the Quran. It, it boiled down to relationships. And, you know, a, another area it's interesting uh, we, we've struggled with is uh, sexual abuse in the ministry uh, and so forth. And and you started the Herma Project uh, in, in Islam. Uh, t tell us a little bit about that. That's it's kind of intriguing. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. The the word hurma, it's an Arabic word in Islamic term that means sacred inviolability. Mm. And, th and this is, you know, I, I named this project about what I believe in, because we have to know what we believe in before we we attack what's wrong, right? And so so this is to recognize that God has made every human being inviolable. There's a sacred inviolability, their body. You know, their body and their selves has the, is as by God has deemed that inviolable. And if we believe that, and that's every person, you know, every person, even in our tradition, even the body of the dead has this inviolability. And this is why we treat them so tenderly after they've died. You know, they can't, you can't like mistreat the body of the dead because even that they still have that, that body that God gave them as a gift to travel through this life. So, so by focusing on what we believe in, then we say, well, what does it mean when someone, someone violates that? And not only that, but violates that with, with, by using their position of religious authority or power or rationalizing it with some kind of religious language or covering it up to protect the reputation of the community you know, all of those things, then we see, we see very clearly, if we know what we believe in, how wrong it is to do all of those things. And, and we know that, that people of faith, when they go through hard times, you know, they have their faith to turn to. They, they, they go, you know, the death of some family member or the illness or what, and they're turning to God. Well, what could be more devilish than to take the source of their ultimate strength and poison it for them? because it is a religious person. So to me, it is, it is just a critical issue to address. And, and I decided to do it because, frankly, I, I, I got to a certain point in my life where I felt that in my, my personal life, my age, you know, getting older, my relationships that I had, I had the time, I had the resources and the relationships to address a topic that is, that is so difficult. And I knew it would be difficult 
but I had faith that we would be able to address it. And so I really, really thank God that I, you know, I'm able to devote a few years to this, really digging into it because, you know, I know that that when people say don't believe a child who discloses, you know, a child comes and says, Oh, this person did this to me. And when we don't believe them, that that it's not necessarily because those people are bad. It's just, it's that they're afraid. It's that they don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe that someone who they respected could have done this. They they don't want to consider what is, if this is true, then what? Like what mm-hmm. happens, right? And so again, I think in this area we also have to be compassionate and understand that that there are a lot of dynamics going on. And so my job is is to work with experts in the field and try to understand those dynamics and make it make it easier for people to um, you know to address these issues without freaking out, without thinking everything's going to collapse. Right. You know, um, your whole community is not going to collapse. What what will be extremely detrimental for a long time is if is if we don't do anything about it. Right. That's you know, as they say, the cover up's worse than the crime, right? I mean that's that's the real the real poisonous thing to a community or a family is when people know and they they don't do anything. You know, you said something that's very important. Uh and I have reflected on this a whole lot. People ask me sometimes, why do you take on some of the issues that you do whether it's befriending Muslims or or dealing with refugees or whatever. And I think there really are things. I'm I'm older than you, Ingrid, but as I'm 63, and I think to myself, there really is value in older people tackling some of the hard issues. I mean, we are what we are, and we don't have to worry about climbing any ladders, and we do have credibility and relationships. And Josh, I want to do a podcast that on sometime on really what older people ought to bring to the table, because a lot of times some of these really hard issues, if they would have the courage, they could cross bridges for a lot of people. And we have Ingrid, let me tell you something. I have enjoyed talking to you today, probably more than anybody I have on this entire podcast, because I think the questions I got to ask you are, were very important questions to me early on is, I became friends with with Muslims. Now that's in on a lighter note. All I want right. to know what's your, what's your favorite kind of food? My favorite kind of food is foraged food. I am just waiting for the raspberries to ripen in the in the meadows, and I'm going to go fight the the mosquitoes and the thorns and and go pick <laughs> those up. <laughs> that's awesome. What's your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby is is really I would say walking with my dog around the block, very slowly. He's an old guy and chatting with my neighbors. I, I just really enjoy that. What makes you laugh a lot? Mm. My husband makes me laugh a lot. He's got, he's got a kind <laughs> of kooky sense of humor, but it makes me laugh. And he really, he, he, I deal with a lot of tough, serious topics and he definitely helps lighten my spirit. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for being a part of this podcast today. It means a lot to me. And hey, we want you to come back sometime. God bless. It means a lot to me too. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this insightful conversation and storytelling journey here with Pastor Bob. Uh, if you were impacted and really enjoyed this conversation, I want to ask a favor. Like most podcasts, we are able to make these happen, these impactful and important conversations with support from partnering organizations and individuals like you. If you felt led to support these conversations and you feel like these are incredibly important, you can do so now and give at support.boldlovepodcast.com. Whether it's a single gift or a monthly donation, we are so thankful that you would even consider to support us. Again, that's support.boldlovepodcast.com. And actually, the very first five monthly donors will receive a special gift from Pastor Bob. So we hope that you're able to support us there. But for more information on the podcast, including show notes and links and any references discussed in this conversation today, you can go to boldlovepodcast.com and you can get all the information there. Thank you so much again for joining us. And remember at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you to live out your faith boldly, learn how to better love your neighbor and how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Have a great day.